News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT, hour number two of the Pete Callender Show. This is it. It's already here. It's amazing. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Remember, get the podcast at WBT.com. You can send emails to Pete at the Pete Callender Show.com. Also, you can hit me up on Twitter at Pete Callender. That is where I uh, paint with the, uh, with the full palette of colors, if you will. Um, I mean, more so than I do every day here. This is just, it's, I'm always on Twitter because it's show prep. I'm all, ABP, man, always be prepping. So the McClatchy newspaper uh, in its uh, report, this thing ran, I think it was first published yesterday. Uh, yeah, published yesterday based on a report that was put together by the State Department of Public Instruction, DPI. But it was required by the state general assembly and uh headline this might come as a shock to you headline all north carolina students were negatively impacted by the pandemic and are behind where they should be academically that according to the report this is a surprise to everybody particularly the head of the teachers union don't call it a union the ncae by the way for people who may not know why i say it like that the union not a union is because for years the ncae and their allies in the Democratic Party and the media, but I repeat myself, they would always say, it's not really a union because they don't have collective bargaining rights because no union has collective bargaining rights in North Carolina, right? That's that's one of the deals. We're a right-to-work state. So they don't have that component, but they are an affiliate of the NEA. They were constituted at the NEA's annual conference, like, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, whatever it was. So it is a subsidiary of the National Teachers Union. But they want to pretend that they're not a union. We're just an association. We don't have collective bargaining rights. But they operate as a union. They've actually become a little bit more honest and open about uh, them being a union, which I appreciate. That's why I say it the way I do. The union, don't call them a union. Or union, not a union. Because it's just a conflicting message that they've been promulgating over the last uh, 30 years here in North Carolina. So, uh, and the reason why I'm calling out the head of the union, Tamika Walker-Kelly, is because a year ago today, she said, psst, learning loss, in the scare quotes, she put learning loss in the quotes. This was on Twitter. Psst, learning loss is a false construct. There. She called it a false construct. Learning loss. Maybe she didn't know what learning loss is, or maybe she doesn't know what a false construct is. I'm not sure how else to explain that, except she was denying, which her allies in the unions were also denying at the time, that this was going to have the kind of long-lasting impact that we obviously are going to see. The report said that students who returned face-to-face for learning, and where specific and targeted resources and supports were immediately put in place, quote, did better than the students whose instruction was purely remote and who were physically disengaged from their school community. I mentioned in the last hour, I've, got, I've given wide latitude, I think, to a lot of people who were presented with bad options and forced to pick one and then tell us to follow one of the bad options, right? You got, you, you got option A, and that's bad. You got option B, that's bad, too. And you're having to decide which one is less bad. And in a lot of cases, when these elected officials, 
made the what they thought at the time was the less bad choice, they turned out to be incorrect. Their cost-benefit analysis, this is why I say, is the juice worth the squeeze? It's a fundamental question in so many things. Is the juice worth the squeeze? You want to look at Ukraine? Is the juice worth the squeeze there for Putin? Right? Is it worth it? All the effort, all the, the strength that it's going to take to do this thing, what do you get out of it? Is that worth it? What's the objective? What's the cost-benefit analysis? What's the risk assessment? I've said this before as well. I know I'm a broken record on this, but maybe you haven't heard it yet. One of the first and most important pieces of information that I got during the beginning of the pandemic was the survey, since updated, by Gallup that was done for Franklin Templeton, the financial group, because they needed to know what are people's perceptions of the risk? Because if you're trying to advise people financially, you need to know what their risk tolerance is. Anybody who's ever met with a financial advisor knows this, right? They put you through the the paces on uh, on what your self-described risk tolerance is. And what they found was people who identify right of center in politics, those people underestimated the risks of catching COVID and then dying from COVID. They underestimated. But people on the left wildly misperceived the risk. They pegged their risks of getting and dying from COVID at one out of two. Does that help explain some of the hysterical lecturing that we have received from our friends on the left over the last two years? I say friends on the left. I've seen quite a bit of people that are now flatly rejecting the entreaties to please don't treat me differently because I want to keep wearing a mask. Please don't ostracize me. And their response has been pound sand. You got me fired. You, you got me fired because I didn't want to do what you demanded I do, whether it was a vaccine or a mask mandate, whatever you wanted me Fired from my job, you wanted me blacklisted so I could never work again. Or you've got my kid years behind where he should be in his speech and emotional development. His social development has been impeded for life. You did that to my kid. So take all the seats. I don't want to hear a single thing from you anymore. That's where we are. And maybe people like you don't understand this, this outrage, this anger, because you were of the left and you perceived the risk to be so much greater than it actually was. And then maybe, okay, mistakes were made. You might have said some things that went a little too far in trying to demonize people that disagreed with you. Like Hillary's use of the deplorables. When you treat people with contempt, they respond to you in kind. I don't know how this whole thing got so polarized. I got some ideas. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. The Pete Callender Show here, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Uh, shocker of shockers, who would have thought that uh, two years of shutting down schools and masking up all the kids would have long-term negative impacts on learning. 
apparently the teachers union did not. And uh, now a new report, though, that was required by the General Assembly, those evil Republicans not caring about kids, forcing the Department of Public Instruction to uh, to run this report. And uh, they did it with SAS Institute. And it was anyway, I'm not going to go into the sp- uh, specifics of how they got to it. But lo and behold, according to the new state report, all students were negatively impacted by the pandemic. It made Things worse, it widened achievement gaps between economically disadvantaged students and others. Uh, Females hurt more so, um, but students of all races and ethnicity were negatively impacted, um, particularly for all students, all grades, except English 2. English 2. But especially for math and science. Then there was this by Stephanie Murray at The Atlantic. She says all parents of young children have been forced to gamble during the pandemic. Many parents of kids with speech disorders don't like those odds. Americans have been arguing about pandemic restrictions for two years, and the debate is particularly fraught among parents of small kids for good reasons. While measures like masking and isolation mean temporary discomfort or inconvenience for most people, their consequences for still developing young children are more mysterious and possibly more significant and lasting. So I would just want to take this moment to welcome all of the people who are now finding themselves in the camp of the child haters. This is the camp that I was thrown into against my will, despite my protestations. Uh, it did not matter. They said I hated kids and wanted them to uh, to die from COVID. And all I was saying was, is the juice worth a squeeze on this? What's the other side of the ledger look like? I understand that you think this is, you know, this safetyism, that this is paramount, that you're you're willing to sacrifice all of the things in pursuit of safety. But how about we get an itemized list of all of the things, right? How about we have that discussion to which the reply uh, to me, the reply was, shut up, you murderer. That was essentially the argument that I got to have for about a year and a half on social media. Now, all of the people that were telling me to shut up murderer, uh, now they're all of a sudden coming to this conclusion that, huh, hmm, weird. So a kid who can't really speak very well has problems learning if you can't see the face. Weird. Who would have thought? I would have no idea. The consequences of leaving speech and language disorders untreated can be profound. Diane Paul, the Director of Clinical Issues and Speech-Language Pathology at the American Speech-Language Hearing Association, says, Kids struggling to express themselves can get frustrated, which can lead to behavioral challenges, and they may have trouble then making friends. Joe, what do you think could happen? Only good things, I assume, when a kid has problems communicating, which then prompts behavioral issues, which then prompts Troublemaking friends. Seems like I'm painting a bit of a uh, of a profile, if you will, of a certain kind of kid, don't you think? A lot of similarities. I'm not saying that all kids who are going to suffer like this are going to turn into antisocial criminals or something. But, hashtag not all kids. But, I do kind of worry that we might be, you know, raising the pool limit a little bit. Don't you think? If you are inducing more of these types of characteristics in a population, a lot of kids with speech disorders struggle to learn 
to read. But language becomes a medium through which we learn everything later on in school, says Alex Levine, a speech-language pathologist at the Learning and Development Center at the Child Mind Institute. And the longer you wait to address a speech or language issue, the harder it is to do so. I, I am the second born of four kids. And my mom will tell you I was, was I, I think I was the last to speak. I, I would rely because my sister was a year younger and I would have her, I would like grunt and point and she would like translate <laughs> for me. And, and look at, I was able to turn my behavioral challenges and my troublemaking friends into a lucrative career. See, so like I am the exception <laughs> that proves the rule. No, I did not take, I mean, this was bad at a time. Like if I was born today, if I was a kid today, I would have been dosed up on ADHD medicine. I would have been uh, in all sorts of speech therapy classes. I have no doubt about that because of just the way, but I grew up at a different time. We were Gen Xers. Right? The last cool generation. So, I kid I kid the other generations. Not really, though. Um, so, this is a, a critical time in a child's development, and you slapped masks on them. And then, you don't even give exceptions or exemptions to kids that need it, not even during the therapy classes. You don't even give them that kind of... Latitude. It's just this one size fits all because it's government. Many of the parents I spoke with are frustrated that they've been asked to compromise their children's social and academic life in the name of public safety. Right. Sorry, uh, your kid is going to have a lifetime of challenges now, uh, but at least the obese 70 year old, you know, didn't have to change their lifestyle. But that was the trade off. I mean, it was never articulated like that, but that is kind of the trade-off, wasn't it? To some extent, I'm not saying all people, right, were 70 and obese, but, I mean, in, just by demographics, we are kind of a larger population and older. Okay. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Oh! Uh, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Piece by Stephanie Murray at The Atlantic. Speech therapy shows the difficult trade-offs of wearing masks. Talking about, you know, how schools got shut down spring of 2020. A lot of parents had to pivot to teletherapy, which was very tough for young kids. I mean, you're talking a two- or three-year-old in, in, a, in a Zoom meeting? Give me a break. And then when in-person therapy did resume, masking requirements made it really tough because the masks hide the mouth from view, which therapists say is disruptive to some forms of therapy, especially those that target motor speech and motor planning. It prevented therapists from using tactile cues like straws or tongue depressors to push patients' tongues into place. Say. Like, think about that. If you're trying to teach somebody, here is the appropriate place to put the tongue when you say that word or or you make that sound, and you're using a tongue depressor to do it, you need you need to have access to the tongue, right? And a mask doesn't give you access to the tongue. Although, unless, of course, you have one of those masks 
that I saw at like the college bowl games that the band was playing. Did you see those things? Or the bands, uh, the band members were using while they were playing. Yeah, yeah, they had masks, but then they had holes cut out in the mask so they could put the instrument into their mouth and then they could play like the saxophone. It's science. Yeah. Children are more hesitant to talk with a mask on, therapists say, which makes it harder for them to feel secure in their ability to communicate. Their verbal output is more restricted because they feel more uncomfortable. This is a particular concern for autistic kids, for whom therapy is often more about nurturing engagement than building vocabulary. But I guess we have to sacrifice a lot of those kids. Right? I mean... Got to flatten the curve and all. Many parents and speech therapists have struggled to obtain any kind of accommodation. The CDC does not list speech or language impairments among the acceptable reasons for exemption from school masking guidelines. So a lot of schools don't grant them, either during in-school therapy sessions or while the kids are in class. Even when exemptions could have been available for kids with qualifying disabilities, Some parents said they were scared to even ask for them, fearing that their child would be ostracized by classmates as a viral risk. (gasps) No. Surely nobody from the mask police would be calling their fellow students plague rats and the like. I've been called that, by the way. Yeah, I've been called that. By hysterical, insane, terrified people on social media. And I don't even, look, if you've been listening to the way I approach this subject and have for, I mean, I was doing the podcast. I started the podcast as the pandemic hit. I was doing that for two years through the entire pandemic, every single day, covering these topics. I've had loads of interaction with people. If you have listened to how I've covered this, I very rarely do I draw sort of stark lines in the sand, you know, like, This is the truth. I've been very clear. There are a lot of things we don't know. I'm still trying to interpret the information as it comes in, who to trust, when to trust them, that sort of stuff. I try to see as many different angles as possible. I try to test as many theories as I can. And yes, it is exhausting. And no, I can't get to it all. And if I can't, I know you can't, unless you're retired or something. Because there's so much information out there that you have to consume, that you have to develop some understanding. And this area never has been my strong suit. So, you know, science and math. Right, I know it's, right, it's almost like I could self-identify as a modern-day K-12 student in North Carolina. True. I I did as poorly in the math and science. A lot of very important development occurs in the first few years of a child's life. It's a key window also for catching and addressing developmental delays. That's why a lot of parents give careful thought to seemingly small matters, like how much screen time do they let their kids have? How many words can their kid uh, or do their children hear uh, every day? Whether it's okay to put a child in timeout. All right, these are big debates that parents have with each other, with their friends. They read books and websites and mommy blogs and all this stuff. Pandemic restrictions feel scary and experimental for parents of kids in the youngest age group because they are. 
They absolutely are. It's one of my biggest beefs. When, Like in the vaccine debate, and people would say, Pete, why did you get the shot? I can't believe you would go, go get the vaccination. Don't you know that you're just a lab rat? Yes, I do know that. But thank you for letting me know in case I didn't. But yes, I'm well aware of that. I am participating in a drug trial. Indeed, I am. And if everybody who got the shot dies, well, that was a mistake. Shouldn't have got the shot. I'm dead. I'm in a better place. That's what I believe. So I'm okay with taking the risk because what if it turned out that the shot did prevent the spread of the virus, which we know it doesn't now. We just know that it prevents the severity and the duration or limits the severity and the duration, which I'm okay with. And by the way, would make the same choice again. But now that we know that, we have, a, we have evidence. See, we have data. And if nobody had taken the shots, we wouldn't have that. We would never know. And if we had people that were not allowed to refuse to take the shots, if we forced it on everybody, then we wouldn't know what the control group looks like. So I was okay with people making that decision for themselves as well. This is the wisdom of the crowd. That's the point. It's much like the free market, people making trillions of individual decisions every single second all over the planet. That's what the market is in economic terms. That's the wisdom of the crowd in an epidemiological sense. People making these different decisions give us data. And when you're like, oh, but Pete, there's going to be like the moron who, you know, goes all around, you know, exposing himself like, yeah, and he's going to provide some data before he dies. We're all going to find out. But he's going to kill other people, too. Very likely. Unless, of course, you are too terrified of that guy coming along and killing you. So you you stay home. This is the thing. People were staying home and people were self-quarantining before government told them to do so. Was that the right call? Well, for them, it was because it was their call. That's been my take on it from the beginning. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show. So Christine Rosen has a big write-up in the latest uh, edition of the, or last week's edition of the Washington Examiner, uh, the front page or the cover story, the pandemonium of pandemic parenting. Many of the pandemic-era stories about parents focused on women who enjoyed a certain amount of privilege and attracted their fair amount of mockery. But there is a core truth embedded in these often overwrought feature stories. Parents of kids that are under the age of 18 have endured a pandemic that is qualitatively different than the one experienced by everyone else. You got kids, especially really young kids. This has been a different experience than people who don't have kids, than my experience. Their experiences as parents have changed the way they understand their obligations to their own families, but also their approach to the institutions that play a daily role in their lives. Many parents across the political spectrum feel like the social compact has been broken. Exactly. Exactly. There are things that we, the citizens, require of the government in order for our acquiescence to the surrendering of ourselves and liberties to the government in certain aspects, right? That's, That's the deal. You provide security, and I will, okay, 
fine, I won't be the one to walk around the neighborhood and kick in people's doors, right? Well, okay, except for like once a week. No, I'm kidding. But seriously, like that's the, that's the general concept of the compact. And now that compact has grown to include way more things than simply security, fire protection kind of stuff, right? Now it's K through 12 education, even pre-K and food and housing and right, all of these things. As a lowercase l libertarian, I, I call it the libertarian prophecy in that the government makes all these promises to you and then they that's how they hook you and they get you accustomed to certain things and now you are at their mercy. It's like debt. I tell people, young, old, doesn't matter. You need to get out of debt. I have been there. I was under, I guess it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about $20,000, $25,000 in debt and people today are probably like, oh, that's nothing. But this was a... This was a while ago. This was 20 years ago. And I dug myself out of the debt, one credit card at a time. And the premise there was because I did not want to be beholden to somebody else. Because am I truly free if I owe all of this money? What am I working for? Am I working for me or am I working to pay off that debt? And when you start thinking in those types of terms... The whole relationship with money changes. Um, the social compact that parents had with their schools, if not shattered, definitely shaken, I would say. In many ways, Rosen writes at the Examiner, Washington Examiner, in many ways, the pandemic highlighted how much parents are a class whose contributions to society are often taken for granted and whose failures or anxieties are deemed to be entirely of their own making. But it is a class that's beginning to understand and publicize the hidden injuries they experienced during the pandemic. See, part of this is wrapped up in the critical race theory stuff, this frustration and anger that, who was the quote from, uh, uh, was it Greg Murphy from Connecticut, I think? No, 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 that's uh, Dr. Greg Murphy. from. He's a congressman from North Carolina. Chris Murphy from Jersey. That's it. The guy in the, that was in the article the other day that we were talking about at the governor's meeting where they were trying to strategize, like, how do we not get blown out in the next election? And he's like, people are just mad. They don't even really know what they're mad about. Like, yeah, I don't think so. I think they have some pretty clear ideas about what they're mad about. And part of it is critical race theory, but part of it gets to this. They had an idea of what was going on in schools. They had an idea of what the trade-off was when they sent their kids over there. They had an idea of what the compact was. And now they know that it's not what they thought it was. So they're kind of steamed about it. Consider how often parents were expected to shoulder the burden and the blame for any suffering experienced by their children as the direct result of institutional and leadership failures. School closures were the most egregious examples of these failures, but there were many smaller challenges that affected the daily lives of parents and their kids. Playgrounds that got closed, sports and extracurricular activities curtailed, grocery and drug stores understaffed and understocked, doctor's offices restricting appointments, mass transit scaled back in some cities to the point where a 45-minute wait for a bus became the norm, not the exception. In all of these cases... The failure of leaders and institutions was passed along to the parents. 
who were expected to endure them in silence, which, for the most part, they did. The public health institutions, the school boards, school administrators, teachers' unions, and elected leaders made it clear to the families dependent on these institutions and infrastructure that they had little to say and that the leaders had little accountability when they failed. One of the things I have hammered away for the last year, which has been, you need to make sure that you express apologies for bad choices you told us to follow you on. And I don't say that in order to be like, oh, that's right, you messed up. No, the point is to recognize that you got it wrong. Because you got up there and you sounded like you knew this was the right way. And this really is directed at like the, our uh, county commissioners, but really at our governor. When you told us things and you demanded things and you said this is the way forward, and you got some stuff wrong, but you've never come out and said you got it wrong. And that's important because if you don't say that you got something wrong, it means that you might not feel like you got it wrong, in which case you might do it again. And that's concerning, especially if you know and I know that that was the wrong choice.